1: this is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the 3rd sub-basement of the Ministry of Snark in Washington D.C. and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkopf in New York in Washington in our tiny studio on the 3rd sub-basement of the Ministry of Snark is Rosa Brooks. Heather Hurlbert, the Director of New Models of Policy Change at New America is someplace. Where are you, Heather?
0: I am coming to you from the campus of Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois, also known as yesterday the Center of Totality.
1: Wow, the Center of Totality. So Heather is the Center of Totality. And from the middle of the night in... Beautiful, someplace Australia. Where in Australia are you, Corey? Sydney, which is beautiful. And wonderful, Sydney, Australia, one of my favorite places in the world, is Stanford University's Corey Shockey. And so this is truly global. We've all survived the eclipse, uh, but we're still in kind of the penumbra of the Charlottesville statements of last week, what was clearly Trump's worst week as president because try as his aides might, they could not get him to step away from statements that clearly showed that this was a man with deep racial prejudices who embraced and even defended the most extreme members of the right wing. And to some extent, Um, I think one could argue the Afghanistan speech that the president made on Monday night, which we'll talk about in the next episode of this podcast, um, was an effort to distract from it. And there have been a lot of efforts to distract from it. But it seems like it's hard to get away from this one. Um, And I'm wondering if in far off Australia, Corey, You are feeling (laughs) like this was a watershed, and is it resonating there in the same way that it resonated here?
2: Uh, It does feel like an important watershed to me. Not because I think uh, anything new was revealed about President Trump, right? Like, the best thing I have seen on Twitter in the past week and a half was somebody saying about the Hillary Clinton video, right? Somebody very smugly saying, she warned us. And the great thing on Twitter was this avalanche of people saying, he warned us, right? Like his behavior made clear that this would, that this is where he would be. Um, And so we, not that we shouldn't be disappointed, uh, but it was actually shocking to have a president of the United States fail so completely ethically and politically in an important moment for the country. Uh, and so so even I was shocked, and I, I wasn't sure President Trump, Trump could still shock me. The second thing, so in addition to it feeling like a watershed moment, for a president of the United States to fail the nation at a time where, first of all, it's not hard to get these issues right, and second of all, um, we have strong expectations of a president being unifying and rejecting uh, division and Nazism in those moments. But the second thing that made it feel like a watershed for me was that, you know, the business leaders distancing themselves from the president, uh, that there seemed to be unity um, that the president was now beyond the pale in some important ways. And the third thing that made it feel like a watershed moment for me was Americans showing the president what the right thing was to do. The response of, marchers in Boston and in other places, not just to turn out in large numbers to, to reassure us all that we as a nation do have a moral compass, but also that in the way that they did it, you know, there were only something like 27 arrests at the Boston protests when there were 40,000 people, there were only 27 arrests. It was an, a, a remarkable display of civility. And so all three of those things made it feel like a really important moment for me.
1: Um, Rosa, as you watched it, I mean, you carry a lot of outrage around in your, in, constantly, in your belly. Constantly, constantly. It's constantly. a heavy you know, burden. And since you were a small, small child, you were outraged. But but it, it seems that we've gone someplace very new, uh, you know, that in fact, there has never been a President of the United States who so openly embraced the extreme right, so openly um, taunted the values that the country has has stood for. Um, and the, 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 the question is, um, you know, are we overreacting?
3: David, you're being a little too nice to our prior presidents and to the values that we have always stood for. I mean, uh, you know, Trump's sympathies would not have been so surprising in in mainstream America uh, 80 or 90 years ago. (laughs) Um, This country has not always stood for values of equality and so forth in in practice as opposed to in rhetorical terms. Um, And obviously – uh, there were powerful fascist and Nazi sympathizer movements in this country prior to World War II, including in the U.S. Congress, uh, almost kept us out of World War II, um, you know, and and throughout the beginning of this century, there was an enormous amount of uh, not terribly submerged uh, elite sympathy for the Ku Klux Klan in many circles at the first part of the 20th century. So, so I don't, I don't, I don't think we should idealize this sort of storied. American past where all American leaders uniformly stood up for what is right. They didn't. That being said, I do think that there has been a real cultural sea change in this country in the past 20 or 30 years. And one of the indicators of that sea change was, you know, here we have our Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, uh, whose background uh, is not, you know, not pretty. Uh, He was a sympathizer with some pretty – revolting causes in his youth um, and he was his, his nomination was initially protested by groups like the NAACP and other civil rights groups because of his terrible record on race issues. But even Jeff Sessions is smart enough to have picked up on the fact that America today is not the America of 30 or 40 or 50 years ago and immediately say there is no room in this country for racism. We condemn this absolutely. It is is astonishing to me that our president could have had, you know, leaving aside everything else and it's always hard to guess that, you know, what does Trump really think? Who knows what Trump really thinks? But – but just have such a tin ear on this so so so, I do think America has changed it. you know this is not a country this forty or fifty years ago, this was a country in which it was possible to be politically successful in many parts of the country while expressing some openly racist views today that is no longer possible. Um, all that being said, what, you know was I surprised by this? No, not particularly. nothing Trump does is particularly surprising to me um, consistent with my long standing view that the only thing we can confidently predict about Trump is that he will be erratic, unpredictable, and generally off the rails. Uh, just a question of which direction he'll be off the rails in any given day. Um, but, but I mean here's something that bothers me even more um, that maybe we want to chew over a little bit uh, is the fact that although here, I mean there's good this is a you know good news, bad news story, the good news is that I think it is fair to say, that in a pretty unified way, the vast majority of Americans and American leaders in business, the clergy, Congress, everywhere said, whoa, you know, Nazis, the KKK, Uh -uh. uh-uh, nope, no place for that. The bad news is that in a poll that just came out yesterday, about 10% of Americans think it's okay to be a white supremacist and okay to, you know, sympathize with the KKK uh, and identify themselves explicitly with the alt-right. 10% is a lot of people and that's pretty darn scary.
1: You know, Heather, you've got a program there which is focusing on, I, how, do, how, how do you refer to it, trans party solutions, cross party solutions in, in political debate. But one of the things that seems to be interesting in, in at this particular moment with reference to what Rosa was saying is that there seems to be a block in American politics that perhaps we've just been ignoring, you know, but there has been racism around for a long time that just isn't shockable, just isn't movable away from their positions. And Trump, you know, what, what, what would we sort of seed Trump, that there's 35% of Americans that will support him under any circumstances? And we now know there's about 10% of Americans, so about a third of Trump's base, that are just racist. They're just okay with white supremacy. Who Who are the other 20%, 25%?
0: Well, I want to back up a little bit to your first question and actually stake out my territory as the pessimist on this podcast, because I think if... Good luck. (laughs) luck. Oh, no, you can't have that (laughs) position, Heather. (laughs) It's taken. (laughs) If Charlottesville was a watershed, it was at least as much a watershed because of the unity of um, far-right groups acting openly, coming together, planning, and staking staking a claim to I hate to use the word legitimate maybe that's not the right word staking a claim to open participation in American political life that um, that they hadn't they hadn't done up to now and um, I hope that um, the Corey what you said about the counter rally in Boston I hope that that's the story that we get to tell when we're all doing this podcast in our dotage um, 40 years from now but um i don't think there's any there's any guarantee that what we saw was was that kind of watershed and i think what what concerns me and this david does go directly to, to the question you actually asked me um you know off of twitter life goes on and I am not sure that, um, and remembering how much Twitter skews liberal, um, skews establishment, skews coastal, um, I'm just not sure how much all the ways that, that we found uh, Charlottesville to be a moment of choosing, a moment of taking sides. Um, I'm not sure how broadly that resonated beyond Twitter. I certainly hope it did. Um, but I don't, I don't know. And. You know, I do think um, our our two party model for understanding American politics is really it hasn't been helpful for a while, and it's it's really a very limited help right now. Um, and so you can you can perform a similar surgery on the Democratic Party, but maybe we're not going to do that this hour. Um, but you can you can take you can slice off that nine um, percent, whatever number it is, who um, have a who for whom sort of white supremacy is is a good thing and maybe a driving thing, maybe one of the central things around which they choose whether or not to participate in politics. Um, then you have you have a, a sort of less government segment of the population. And then you have, you know, what we all, coming out of our foreign policy backgrounds, would think of as a, as a more um, unilateralist segment um and oftentimes those three those three groups when they get together um the under the banner of the Republican Party they are an unstoppable political force in American life now you can map out similar groups on the left and you can say the times at which the left can steal if the left can steal the racists or if the left can steal the the people whose primary impulse is toward limited government, or the people whose primary impulse is toward American power. Um, and one could argue that the moments where Democratic presidents have been really popular and, and pulled down the middle, um, they've been successful in pulling one or more of those, those chunks away. So. We can, you know, there's there's two ways of of approaching um, transpartisanship or cross-partisan organizing. And one of them is a very um, feel-good, politics is icky and we're all going to be above politics and put our hands together and, and solve problems because we're all, all Americans. And that kind of thing really breaks down, frankly, in the face of something like Charlottesville. And I got some messages, um, some emails some organizing from some of the, the groups that love to do the cross partisan work saying, oh, you know, this shows how important it is that we all talk to each other. And I kind of said, well, wait, actually, there's some things I'm not really willing to have open dialogue about. And, you know, racism, sexism, and anti-Semitism are are three of them. So it both shows you the the criticalness of a model that goes beyond saying we're we're permanently divided into two parties, but also that just saying, oh, if only we all talked more. That that's
1: not a solution either. A very very interesting analysis, and I think this notion that American politics are much more fragmented than two parties can possibly speak to um, uh, is being borne out in the results that we are we are seeing. But you know, of course, the question becomes: Where does it lead us from here? How does a post Charlottesville Trump function? You know, he's got businesses where like, you know, the Mar-a-Lago resort where something like 16 different or companies that were organizing uh, events at the Mar-a-Lago resort uh, have, have said, no, we're not going to do it there anymore. His uh, business advisory councils quit. And then he said, well, I was going to disband them anyway. Um, He uh, you know, his arts advisory council quit Uh, He threw in getting rid of his climate advisory council just because he had the opportunity to do so at the moment. Um, You know, he he he's sort of shedding support at this point. And, Corey, the question becomes, does something like Charlottesville make it almost impossible for a guy like Trump to perform a public function outside of the bubble of that 30 percent that are willing to tolerate him doing anything?
2: It's a really interesting question, David, and uh, I, um, as I listened to the president's speech on Afghanistan, I was wondering exactly that. Um, Can the president, does the president actually have the moral standing anymore to build a base of support beyond his own? I honestly don't know. I think it's likely on Afghanistan because so few Americans are actually affected by our wars. The civil-military gap is so wide experientially that maybe that's the wrong test case. Maybe any major piece of legislation would be a more a better test for that.
1: Well, I mean, legislation is one thing, but Rosa, you know, one of the key roles that the president plays is ceremonial. But where can he perform a ceremonial role? You know, where, where, where?
3: <laughs> I think in a limited range of places. I don't think the Boy Scouts of America are going to be inviting him back, for instance. No, I, I mean, on the one hand, um, I think we're going to continue to see, maybe slowly, maybe rapidly, various "quote unquote" mainstream organizations uh, in American public life, both in politics and in business, culture, the arts, education, sports—you name it pulling away and saying things like, no, thank you, Mr. President. We really don't need to make opening remarks here. No, thank you, Mr. President. We'd really rather you not visit us uh, or endorse us or anything like that because I think that in mainstream America, he 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 is toxic at this point. He, he's, he is toxic to the majority of Americans according to public opinion polls at the moment. Might that conceivably change? Sure, anything could happen, but will it likely change? I don't think so. Um, so, are we going to see? You know, he pulled out of the Kennedy Center Honors, right, because so many of the artists were boycotting him. Um, in that sense, I think, yeah, he's not going to be able to function as every past president has. There has been a degree of non-partisanship, trans-partisanship in the presidency. You know, when it comes to goofy stuff like Easter egg rolls and turkey pardonings and. Boy Scouts and Kennedy Center Honors. We've always seen that uh, with all of our presidents. Um, I don't think we, we're going to have that with this president. Does that, however, mean that he somehow disappears or stops doing things that are damaging to this country or damaging to world security? No. Um, he's still – as long as he's in that office, he has tremendous power to screw things up. Uh, so that's that's not going to change. I mean, I mean to say he's – it may be that he won't be able to get a single thing through Congress, you know, in terms of his own legislative agenda, etc. But he – the executive, as we know, for good or for ill, has quite a lot of ability to do things even with a hostile Congress, uh, even with hostile courts, even with hostile – a hostile public.
1: Well, let, let me let me give you a chance, Heather, to disprove your your thesis that you're the most pessimistic among us. And by the way, as far as I'm concerned, you disproved it long <laughs> ago. Because that when when you said we'll be doing this in 40 years, um, given that I'm 61, I thought, well, that's pretty optimistic, actually. <laughs> but, um,
3: David, I thought you were only 42.
1: I, yes. No. Ex- excuse me. What I meant to say was 42. Um, but, <laughs> But but in any way, well, you know, one possibility of this is, 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 is sort of maybe evidenced a little bit by the Afghan thing. I'm going to be a little bit over-optimistic here. But maybe Trump, because of Charlottesville, now has to start behaving a little more normal because he's now seen as such an outlier and, and really can't, you know, as soon as he gets anywhere near the inflammatory stuff and, you know, we're we're taping this on Tuesday morning, and by Tuesday night, he'll give a speech in Phoenix that will disprove everything I'm saying, perhaps. But, um, but you know, may, may, maybe this forces him to sort of crawl into the into the straitjacket of behaving more like a president because everything else is just too inflammatory.
0: So people have been saying that something would force him to crawl into the straitjacket of behaving like a president um, since before he got the nomination. So, David, I'm going to actually flip that supposition on its head and say, what if um, going along with the more mainstream policy option for Afghanistan was the price, a price that he was willing to pay to keep his much beloved generals happy and around him, so that they, in turn, continue to provide a veneer of order and legitimacy for these other policies and these other ways in which he's moving himself out of the American mainstream, as, as Rosa and Corey described.
1: Ro- uh, Corey, Heather is absolutely right, um, and I don't believe anybody could possibly argue with what she just said. Do you want to give it a shot? <laughs>
2: um. I'm not sure I would argue against it. I, too, think that we should long ago have been disabused, that the president was somehow going to pivot to becoming presidential. Uh, I think the president has offered myriad evidence that he has no intention of doing that. And I'm actually pretty fearful that David's right and that uh, the president having you know, been forced into a straitjacket of uh, presidential behavior on Afghanistan is going to let fly in Arizona um, because his fundamental nature is so destructive that, that efforts to constrain him lead him to
1: uh, lash out. So I don't actually disagree with Heather. Well, let me let me go take it in a, in a slightly different direction then and, and, and present each of you in succession with a similar question. Trump is odious. Trump is a racist. Trump is unfit to be president. Trump is incompetent. He has demonstrated no desire to learn the job, no desire to operate within the boundaries uh, that traditionally, uh, uh, proscribe presidencies and 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 you know sort of cause their the occupants of the White House to try to behave in a way that is uh, 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 at, at least you know on the face of it an example for citizens of the country. he's awful and and he's had seven eight months now with a bunch of people around him who are supposedly, you know, there, despite being good people, because uh, they're patriots and, and they want to keep him from doing bad stuff. But he keeps doing bad stuff. They don't actually seem to be influencing him, even up to and including this Afghan speech where the generals say one thing and Trump says, OK, I hear you, generals. And then he gives a speech in which he actually doesn't articulate anything that commits him to the path that they've discussed uh, and uh, essentially takes advice without taking it. Why do these guys stick around? Why would anybody stick around when they're legitimizing somebody who's awful and when they are, in fact, permanently tainting their own reputations? Shouldn't, as Elliot Cohen has argued, shouldn't they all just get out of there and fight him from the outside where they can be open about it, as opposed to the inside where they've been incredibly ineffective at doing it? Rosa? Rosa? (laughs)
3: <laughs> it's a hard question, and I'm sure everyone, uh, all of our listeners, probably enjoyed the uh, images of uh, John Kelly, now the White House chief of staff, and one of one of one of Trump's generals, uh, or former generals, technically speaking. Um, Uh, watching Trump's uh, impromptu Charlottesville remarks and just looking like he was trying to decide whether to cry, you know, or slam his head into the wall with despair and irritation. Um, So I I, I have to believe that uh, quite a lot of Trump's closest aides are thinking, oh, my God, you know, this guy is terrible. You know, this is awful. What am I doing here? And and so I I was one of the many people who sent out some little fiery tweets uh, last week saying you know okay McMaster Mattis Kelly you know I believe you tried but it's time to get out of there before you're just permanently poisoned and and I had I had several debates with friends of mine who said no no you know but for these guys you know is nuclear war but for these guys is even lunar lunacy and and. I I find it really hard to decide. I mean I, I do believe that people like uh, Jim Mattis are there in their positions not because they approve of Donald Trump um, but simply because they strongly believe that – uh, particularly, you know, I I, and I wouldn't want to <laughs> put words in their mouths. I'm sure they would never say such things. But, you know, that particularly at a time when we're really leaderless in many ways, that you need capable uh, leaders at the Defense Department, in the White House, in when the president's not going to provide that. And, and I get that. And part of me thinks, yeah, I you know, if, if they're all that's between us and nuclear war, then I sure want them to stay. Another part of me feels like, you know, the faster this administration falls apart, the better. And that if people like Mattis left, it could really be the tipping point for Republicans in Congress. It could really be the tipping point for actually getting Trump out of there through impeachment, you know, or through 25th Amendment or something. So another part of me thinks they've got to go. You know, it's not that Trump stays in office and gets worse. It's that that's that's how we get the tipping point to actually getting past this guy. But, but it's, it's a hard decision. I, I, I'm curious to know what, Corey, what you think at this stage.
1: Well, Corey?
2: Well, Corey? I am in favor of good people remaining in the administration because I lack Rosa's confidence that their absence would lead to the collapse of the administration. I wouldn't call it confidence.
0: Uh, yeah. Really <laughs> a I faint, agree. distant hope. I agree strongly with Corey that um, the departures wouldn't make a difference because in my view, the reason that this administration is able to continue on and will be able to continue on for the indefinite future isn't because there are some members of Congress who are still sort of not clear on, on how much danger we're in. Um, it's because there are still members of Congress who feel that their electorates, uh, will punish them if they are perceived not to be supporting Trump and they are are continuing to choose their own, to put their own political futures, um, at least on a par with whatever they perceive the, the danger of the, of the Republic to be. And, you know, unless, um, Unless all of the or a large number of the remaining cabinet officials sort of got together and had a plan for how they could resign in a way that would cause that to shift, um, which I think would be very difficult for them to do, then um, I, I I sympathize a lot with the, the struggle that Rosa described of, you know, sort of what is it better to do. Um, it is my view that we we knew we knew what who this man was, and so the choice to go in in the first place was in many ways already um, indicative of the character of the people who chose to do it. So in some ways, I don't think there's a there's a diminishing return at this point. You might as well stay and do the best you can. Um, I mean, the other question I suppose is what are the specific things that you are asked to do that go against your fundamental principles? And so there are some officials that it's hard for me to square the ideas my friends who know of them, know of them have of their principles with some of the things they've already agreed to do or stood by and participated in. But um, we're not in in an environment where... Um, We have these restive factions trapped within two-party vehicles. Um, There's just, I don't see a, a road by which the kind of security elite moves any faction of the Republican Party, any large enough faction of the Republican Party to shift the calculus on impeachment. And I think if that had been true, then Evan McMullin would have been more successful and we wouldn't even have this president.
3: Although, I mean, I think there's a separate issue um, which, you know, I couldn't make the judgment for anybody else, but there's just the ethics issue of uh, leaving aside what happens and is it better or worse for the country? You know, at what point does an individual say... I can't be part of this, you know. I can't be part of this, even if I'm doing some good in my little corner. I cannot stand stand there smiling or even grimacing next to this man when he says this kind of thing. I'm not going to do it anymore. And 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 for me, that line would have been crossed, you know, at this point. Um, a sort of you know après moi le déluge in terms of the political consequences. But 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 I I just worry. I just think. You know, how do you look yourself in the mirror at some point if you're if you're standing there gritting your teeth and grinning while he says some of the stuff he says?
1: Yeah, first of all, by using French, you've revealed yourself to be an elitist and and oh, even worse.
3: We have already proudly proclaimed our identity yeah, as elitist assholes. To, well,
1: that, she,
2: that horse is long
3: out
1: the Well, you would say it was a horse, and I would say it was a dog. Yeah. But in any event...
3: I would say it was a pastrami sandwich.
1: It, it was a pastrami sandwich. But it is cosmopolitanism of the worst sort. Uh, Helen Gurley Brown, encierge. be damned, but, alors. Ha, Having said that, with only a minute or two left, I just want to throw in my two cents here, which is I'm very sympathetic to uh, essentially the argument that that Rosa was tilting towards, which is there is a moment at which if the president is a racist or the president does things that are grotesquely dangerous in terms of foreign policy or the president violates the law or the president... Um, seems to be ignoring or undercutting the agencies that you're tasked with running, that the appropriate thing for an official to do is to resign the government because by not doing so, you add legitimacy to the president quite apart from damaging yourself and from the outside, you can work on it. And trust me, if um, secretary Mattis or national security advisor, McMaster, um were to step down from their jobs, it would be profoundly damaging for Trump. Meanwhile, as they stay in their jobs, um, you know, the notion that somehow one person uh, in these key jobs is going to make the difference versus uh, Trump and essentially a coterie of people around Trump who are promoting bad ideas is also silly and, by the same argument, the notion that somehow it, it is only Mattis who can get the leaders of the Joint Chiefs to behave in a responsible way uh, is, is uh, belied by the fact that, in fact, the Joint Chiefs spoke out um, on, on a variety of these issues in a really remarkable way. And maybe we can end with a comment on that. But, you know, Corey, to me, one of the things that has been most striking in the past few weeks and. And, and and might be the dominant news story of the time if it weren't for a guy like Trump, is that first of all, the president said we we're going to get trans people out of the military, and essentially the military brass um, said no, not so fast. And and then subsequently the president spewed this racist um, sewage from his mouth, and one by one, the heads of each one of the um, uh, branches of the military uh, made very strong pointed statements that essentially said, nope, we don't agree with the president of the United States. Um, and, you know, that that was really striking to me um, and uh, suggests that you don't need the political appointees in order to get the departments to behave in the right way.
2: Well, um, I, I would not endorse an understanding of it that sweeping, I think um, there. I think it is true that the chiefs, or at least some of the chiefs, are very strongly driven by conscience on the issues associated with Charlottesville. The second thing, uh, thing though, is that the American military worries has worried for a long time about potential infiltration by by violent right-wing groups and violent racist groups. So they stand sentinel on that issue, policing themselves to a much greater degree than other issues, like, for example, um, opposition to the president's tweets about transgender issues. There's a lot stronger, more cohesive institutional concern about, uh, racism and violent right-wing groups uh, by the military leadership, but I agree with you that their their um, objections to the president's comments were magnificent, and even before the president's comments, you know, the the chief of the navy, John Richardson, who who was the first of the chiefs to speak out about that, I. I think, was in advance of the president's comments.
1: Well, Heather, I mean, I think I'm going to give you the last word here as we wrap this thing up, but I I, I do think they were magnificent, and I do think it raises another possibility, and that is that senior people in the administration can find ways to publicly express their opposition to the views of the president uh, and should do so when the views of the president are odious.
0: Indeed, but I do think we are f- fixation on personalities sometimes gets us away from, you know, we have a system which is designed to work a particular way, which is the public elects an individual, God help us, and that individual is supposed to have the power to appoint political appointees and control the bureaucracy. And um, while I was as delighted as anybody and am and, and, and really thrilled with the way that Um, many of our career bureaucracies and particularly uh, military leaders have stood up for the um, principles that we like to tell ourselves our government is founded on. Um, It is supposed to work that the president can control these folks and can fire them. And so I think much of the discussion of whether either political appointees or career folks can control and limit Trump, the system is designed for them not to be able to do that.
1: One. Anything else to add to this, Rosa? Mentioning Archibald Cox and Nixon, <laughs> or anything?
3: No. The only, just on the on the issue of the service chiefs' statements in response to Charlottesville. Uh, you know, I think it's worth stating once again that although, of course, Trump is the commander in chief, uh, that military officers take an oath to the Constitution of the United States, and uh, they have a duty to. Uh, reject unlawful orders, and and in fact, you know, Trump has not given any orders that relate in a direct way to the issues of race and so forth brought up by the Charlottesville events. But but there's there's nothing particularly insubordinate. Uh, I, I think it is fair to say that in 2017, American constitutional norms and and American law and decades of Supreme Court decisions uh, make opposing racism a constitutional norm in this country. So so there's nothing there isn't anything inconsistent inherently about them simply saying, you know, hey, by the way guys, we think racism is abhorrent and it has no place in the military.
1: Well, I think that's an excellent point to end. And I you know, there are opportunities for those who are in opposition to the most odious things that the president does, even who are still in the government. To express themselves in a way that are consistent with constitutional norms, legal mor- norms, social norms, and express their resistance, perhaps respectfully, even though the person involved may not warrant the, or deserve the respect. Um, we are going to keep talking about these kind of things as we go forward with deep state radio. Uh, we'll have another podcast later this week, um, which will be talking about Afghanistan and related issues. And then next week, which is the week prior to Labor Day, we're going to take the week off. We'll, uh, tweet out some of the best episodes of the the, the first series of things that we've done here at Deep State Radio. Uh, And then on September 7th, we will resume with um, a new run of Deep State Radio with uh, many of your old favorites, a lot of their spirit animals, and the kind of snark and insight that you've come to expect from all of them. Uh, But before we do that, please uh, uh, allow me to thank Corey in Australia Um, Heather in Illinois, Rosa in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK for this great discussion. Thanks, guys, and we'll see you all in September. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.